Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Because we're all in one organization with the engineers are also teammates, the drivers are also teammates. And rule number one is don't hit your teammate. Rule number two is just finish as high as you can. Rule number three is just don't hit your teammate. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was Michael Cox, Kettering University class of 2015, and currently performance engineer for Andretti Autosport, talking about the unwritten rules of IndyCar racing. In this episode, Michael, who works on the 29 car driven in 2022 by Italian-Canadian driver Devlin DeFrancesco, talks about his years in the engineering trenches in both IndyCar and NASCAR, and about all things racing. Michael Cox, thank you for joining us today, shortly after Thanksgiving. Well, glad to have you. Thank you for having me. You are, as I have mentioned in the lead-in, and we'll get to some of your background, but you are currently a performance engineer with Andretti Autosport. Now, a lot of people know what that is, and a lot of people don't know what that is. So give us a little bit of background about Andretti Autosport, because it's a complex organization. As I understand it, there's a lot of pieces to it. And a little bit about what IndyCar is, which that's what that's about. And then let's get into your job and what you're doing as a performance engineer. So tell me a little bit about Andretti Autosport. Right. So Andretti Autosport is a team that is fielded by Michael Andretti, son of Mario Andretti. And his stated purpose is to have a foot in every single racing series in the world. That's his stated goal. We're not there yet. Currently, I work with the IndyCar side as the performance engineer. Let me just interrupt you there. Yeah, um, go ahead. When you say every single series, and you're with IndyCar, yep. what would be other series? His current ambition is to get a Formula One team started. So he wants a team in top field drag racing, IndyCar, NASCAR, everything that's on TV, everything that's watched. Does that include even the truck racing and all that stuff? If you can. If wow. he can make it viable. Wow. Okay. Well, go on. So he his, his ambition is to uh, have a team in all these areas. So yep. give us a little bit more when they start and how's it made up Ooh. and where are you fitting in? I'd have to look back at to see where he actually started. And I know he started as a Formula One and IndyCar driver. He's done quite a bit since then as well. So I, I fit in as the performance engineer for the number 29 car for Devlin DeFrancesco. Well, before we get into that, which I want to, I've got a lot of questions about that. Tell me a little bit about the scope of the organization. I think a lot of people know that when they see cars in NASCAR or Formula One or whatever, they, they see a driver and they see the pit crew and, and they know there's a, some engineers and so on, but I don't, I think a lot of people don't understand quite the size of an organization. Tell me a little bit about what's involved in the whole Andretti Motorsport. Right. So at least with the IndyCar side, I know there's about three to 400 people that I work with. I know there are branches in the UK and beyond that, that contain similar amounts of people to support 
these series and these teams that operate. So when you watch the race, what you see is you see the engineers, you see the driver, you see the pit crew, but then there's an entire shop or factory that's behind that, that also supports those people that travel. And where is the shop for Andretti Motorsport? Uh, Indi- I'm sorry. Yep. It's Indianapolis in Indiana. And is Mario, who's the one that I grew up watching, is Mario still involved or is he kind of retired? A little of both. He tries to play a great role of morale support at this point. He also drives the two-seater cars that operate. The two-seater cars are just, you know, you show up, you get in the back seat, and he shows you what the experience is like to be in one of these cars. So somebody could go up there and ride in one of those cars. If you sign the correct waivers and you pay <laughs> and the entry fee, yeah. How fast do those cars go, the Indy cars go, when they're full out on a major track? Yep. So the, the top speed is pretty track dependent. When they're on ovals, they go a lot faster because they're not having to slow down to cornering speeds. So on a road course, we can get up to 180 to 200 miles an hour top speed. On the Indy track, the Indianapolis Speedway that is the Holy Grail, during qualifying, the cars will be above 240 miles an hour. Wow. Yep. Wow. So if I came up there and, and rode in a two-seater and signed all the waivers and everything, how fast would I end up going in, in the car that I got to ride in? Almost just as fast. I don't have data on those, so it's it's hard for me to, to pull that number, but I think they're pretty close. But I'd a lot say... faster, a lot faster than I'd even go on the Autobahn in Germany. Absolutely. I think the somewhere between 160 and 200 is wow. a range for a track that they they put you in it. So tell me a little bit about the IndyCar circuit, because I know the F1 circuit is all over the world and in exotic locales. I've seen races in Monte Carlo and in Miami. I know there's a big one coming up next year in Las Vegas. Tell me about IndyCar and where, where they race and, and something about the locales. Yep. So Formula One's focus is a lot more global. IndyCar used to be on that level. They used to go to Australia, Brazil, such tracks that is a more international like that. Currently, all of the races are in the U.S. except a single street course that's in Toronto. I'd say the series at a point where it's trying to regroup and then be able to reach back out to those international locales. So there is a team that's from Argentina that operates in IndyCar, and they took a demo car that they had and race it around one of the Argentinian tracks. And I think there is, it was somewhere, I'm trying to remember the number it was believe, I believe it was between 20 and 40,000 people that showed up to watch that demo. Wow. So well, now are most of the races around ovals and, and set tracks or are they around urban environments like a lot of them? So they try to split it such that there are some ovals that are run. So currently we do the Indianapolis Speedway, Texas, what they call the Worldwide Technology Raceway, which is formerly Gateway in St. Louis, and Iowa, the uh, Iowa Speedway. We also do street courses, namely St. Petersburg, Florida, Long Beach, California, and Toronto in Canada. There's quite a few permanent raceways that we go to. Some of the more famous ones are like uh, Laguna Seca in California. 
the Road America in Wisconsin, as well as uh, some of the lesser known ones. Now, tell me a little bit for, and I found this fascinating when we talked briefly earlier, the difference between Formula One and IndyCar, because to the eye, they look very similar as opposed to NASCAR, which is an entirely different vehicle. So tell me tell me a little bit of the difference between IndyCar and Formula One. Right. So Formula One's focus is to be the pinnacle of motorsports, all out, whatever fits in the box within certain regulations is allowed. It is the most technical technically advanced series in the world, and they have the money to match it. Unfortunately, what that leads to with that series is it's not so much focus on the drivers to perform, but it's a technical challenge. If you have the best car, you have the best chances of performing as good as possible. So the typical guys that are at the front are always at the front. The typical guys at the back are always at the back, and that's how their series is. IndyCar is a spec series, so we're not allowed to produce our own parts. The car for each team is relatively the same. It's all standard parts. And what that does is it keeps the cost lower and puts the focus back on the drivers. So the best drivers are normally up front and the typical drivers that could use some improvement are at the back. Would that lead to a greater variety of winners over a season in IndyCar than F1, where they Absolutely. have more of the same winners? Absolutely. Yeah. So Formula One, for example, if you've watched the past, call it 10 years, it'll be the same driver winning race after race after race because he has the best car and he's one of the best drivers. And you put that combination together with the best teams and it's unstoppable. IndyCar, well, because you don't have a lot of that technical difference from car to car, the driver's able to edge out those little differences over each other. Well, let's drill down to what you do, being a performance engineer. I know there's a lead engineer, and then there's the performance engineer. And and tell me a little bit about your role and when you perform it during the week, during the race day, because you said you're traveling now, as opposed to previous jobs going to races. So tell me about your role. Right. So I work with the race engineer. The race engineer speaks with Devlin on the radio while a car is on track. It's my job to ensure the car is operating in a way that allows Devlin to achieve the best possible performance. So before the event, before we leave the shop, before we go anywhere, we're taking in all the available information we have. So the simulations, the recommendations from like the aero department, the recommendations from the tire manufacturers, manufacturer, there's only one. And the information that we have within the team, we combine all of that to put together a starting setup for the car. Now you have some leeway in that though, even though it's more, it's stricter than F1, you still have some leeway in the setup? Yep. Yep. So, so again, it's a spec car. So the parts themselves are standardized, but how they're okay. bolted on the car, the adjustment positions that we're allowed to work within, those can be different. So say like a uh, suspension pickup position or a spring rate from a corner of the car or something. An anti-roll bar might be stiffer or softer for each driver, each track, yeah, the bits like that. Well, now, is there a lot of competition 
across with your peers as engineers or are you just doing your job? Because I would think there'd be a lot of competition in F1, but I'm not as clear if there's as much competition engineer to engineer across teams in indie racing. And is there a lot of pressure on what you do? Because you obviously, you got to get it right. And if you've got something, I mean, I guess the worst case scenario is you get something really wrong, somebody loses a life. Yeah. And that's one of the things I try to hammer home as well is because we're all in one organization with a... The engineers are also teammates. The drivers are also teammates. And rule number one is don't hit your teammate. Rule number two is just finish as high as you can. Rule number three is just don't hit your teammate. So like, if I have a problem, it's also my job to inform the others, the other engineers on the other cars of the problem to make sure that they don't run into the same issue. And the same back to them of if they tell me an issue that they're having, I may be able to help them solve that issue. So you actually, competitors work with each other for reasons of safety and and so on. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, so that was just an example of within the Andretti organization itself. Oh, okay. Um, Not not with other cars that you're competing with on a day-to-day basis, on a race day. Yeah, but at at an overall series level, if there is a safety issue, say, the spec parts that are supplied aren't meeting the specification that they're supposed to be uh, meeting. The team organization leaders will start to talk to each other to then bring that issue to the series. So that's that's above what I'm doing. But I'm, I might find those issues, bring it to the next level. Those guys will start to talk to each other and then bring it to the series. Now, will you ever be, what's your day like on race day? Because you, you go to Laguna Seca, you go to any one of these places. Obviously, you've been working all week to help prepare the car to the appropriate yep. specs that the lead engineer or the race engineer has laid out. Do you have other colleagues? Are there, are there multiple performance engineers? There's one performance engineer per car. So it kind of falls on you. What's your day like on race day? Yep. So normally the track will open usually about 7 a.m. is when they expect us to be there. So we'll wake up at 5.30, 6 a.m., get ready in the morning. And while we're still at the hotel, either eating breakfast or before breakfast, perform a little bit of data analysis before we leave to make sure that the predicted weather that we had from the day before is still what we expect, or if it's not, if the conditions are evolving, that we're trying to stay on top of that. Part of that's really important because the performance engineers select the gearing for each track. So say if you have a wind that's blowing westward and it shifts to eastward or the magnitude changes from two miles an hour to 10 miles an hour, that changes the gears that I select to go in the car. So before we leave, we, um, well, either together or independently cover those and then meet up at the track to compare our notes to each other. And we may go with different gears. We may go with different other configurations on the car that those are impacted by, but we'll still compare notes after the session to see who had the best answer. So we show up, we prepare, we set up the pit box. We either do calibrations that are required or do setups that are required at the track. Around 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. is normally the first session. So the car goes out the pit grid or the pit lane, green flag, car goes on track. And all the cars normally leave 
together. So while the car is on track, it's my job to watch the telemetry and make sure that everything's operating correctly, the ride heights are correct, the balance on the car, the uh, handling balance is meeting the metrics that we have established, uh, tire pressure, stuff like that. And then... And this it, is during a test run, kind of? Well, this, this is during practice. And practice, so, yeah. Yeah, first, first practice. Yeah. Seeing if the lap times are up to where we expect, and if they're not, look for where in the data that we're not meeting our expectations and give that feedback to the driver of you need a little bit more in turn two or you need to back up the brakes a little more in turn eight or something like that. So most of these sessions are say 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, which is very, very short. You might get to do three runs, four runs if you're lucky. So all of these changes that we have planned to make during this session are pretty much pre-established they're, they're like chess moves. If the track goes this direction, I have this change in mind. If that change was too much, I can walk back half a step on that change. So like a spring rate or a tire pressure change or something like that. If the track is some other condition that we are expecting, we'll make a different change. So oversteer, understeer, we're trying to fit that balance of the car to the driver's expectations. We are talking with Michael Cox, Kettering Class of 2015, and the performance engineer for the number 29 car at Andretti Autosport IndyCar Racing. Do you have people feeding you information? I assume, I know you're talking, or somebody's talking to the driver about yep. how the car is performing. Is that is that to you or somebody else? Yep, so we have the race engineer and the race, uh, what they call the race caller. His job is to talk to the to the car and while we're in the race, make the strategy decisions. When the pit, how fast to go, should we be saving fuel, that sort of thing. So he will normally communicate to the driver. The race engineer also has the option to talk directly to the driver or relay it through the race caller if you need to be. We are having that conversation on what they call the timing stand where we see all the timing information coming back to us and the telemetry. So we'll talk amongst each other on a uh, live intercom system. We can all hear each other. We can hear each other breathing. Everything that's said is live. So we can have these conversations to then relay that information to the driver if he needs it. Well, now, is there a lot of pressure with this? Do you ever have a situation where something goes wrong and the driver comes in and throws down his helmet and gets in the face of the engineers because he's upset about something that was set up wrong? Oh, absolutely. And that's usually when we have something unexpected happening or we're dealing with an issue that we haven't had before. And we walk away scratching our heads and we have to kind of huddle up and study the data to figure out what was the issue or the issues already known, such as to give an example, if we expected, say, we put on a certain brake configuration that should help the driver on that particular circuit, and it doesn't work appropriately. He has too much brake locking or he's struggling with the balance as he's trying to bleed off the brakes or something. That was an issue we, we had last year of, of uh, trying to solve that. And the drivers can get pretty tempered when something isn't performing as it should. Another issue that we had was to 
give another personal example was the car is supposed to have a certain amount of fuel in it when it goes out for each of these sessions. And I don't have the ability to monitor what that fuel load is. That's uh, another one of my responsibilities until it's down to the last gallon. And sometimes that last gallon isn't enough to make it all the way back in the pit lane once it leaves. So if there's something that happens between the lap count that's required by the race engineer, communicating that to me, me sorting out what that fuel load needs to be, and then communicating that down to the pit crew to put that in the car. If something breaks down in that chain of communication, there can be an issue. We had an wow. issue with mishearing how much was supposed to go in the car. The car is supposed to do three laps for qualifying. On the second lap, I noticed the fuel alarm was on and having to communicate back to the engineer, hey, we need to save fuel, bring the car home. We have an issue. We made it home just barely, but we had to spend a couple of days checking all of our equipment, interviewing ourselves, interviewing the crew, and find where the breakdown was in the communication. Wow. I saw it was looking at the uh, is it a Netflix show on it's on Formula One. Yeah. And and uh, Drive to Survive or something. And the guy in the first race of the year at Perth, twice the pit crew didn't put the tire on correctly. Yep. I mean, does that kind of thing fall under your purview? The pit crew? Not really. So the pit crew falls under another one of the leadership roles on the car. That would be the crew chief. So the crew chief is the leader in charge of the mechanics. The mechanics are the pit crew. So the same guys that are changing the configurations on the car when we request that are the same guys that are changing the tires during the race. Now, I have a question I always wonder. You see these, God forbid, these horrific crashes where pieces of the car go flying in every direction. Do they just have to go out and build or buy a new car? What happens in that situation? I mean, obviously, it seems obvious to me they're totaled. They yeah. just have to go get a new car, new engine, everything? Or or what, what happens in that situation? Fortunately, when the cars crash, we have a lot of spare parts. There is the guys at the shop who, when we bring back these broken parts, either they're junk and we throw them out. Well, I guess not throw them out, but we try to recycle as much of those parts as possible. So... The steel parts go out to steel recycling. The carbon bits get ground up. They go out to whatever you can do with carbon. They like to recycle that stuff too. But do they have to come up with a whole new chassis and a whole new engine lots of times? A lot of the times, no. Usually it's it's a bigger crash if the tub is damaged. So some of the street courses, there's not a lot of energy when they hit the wall because they're going under 100, maybe just over 100 miles an hour. Some of the big crashes, like the Indy Speedway crashes, cars are doing over 200. So there's a lot of energy that happens there. So there's a, there's a higher chance of, say, the suspension point to puncture the tub or the gearbox to be permanently cracked or something like that. At that point, we swap it out with a known good spare. So normally we'll have like a spare sets of wings, a spare gearbox, a spare engine, a spare tub spare suspension parts so we can basically rebuild an entire car at the track if we have to 
a tub being the the body in which the pl- the driver sits. Correct. The tub being okay. the main crash structure area that the driver sits in. Okay. Well, now I know you with, and we won't spend a lot of time there because we've already. But you before this, you were with Dale Coin Racing, also Correct. a performance engineer. What what who was your what car and what was your driver there? Yep. So when I started at Dale Coin, my driver was Santino Ferrucci. That was on the number 18 car. We had a pretty okay the year there. We finished fourth at the Indianapolis 500. Wow. That's something I'm hoping to reprise or do better at some point. Haven't done that well again yet. The second year I was there, I worked with uh, Ed Jones, also on the number 18 car. Before you were with Dale Coin Racing, you were actually in NASCAR, but as an electrical development engineer with Stuart Haas. Tell me a little bit how, I mean, beside the obvious, that it's an entirely different kind of car, and they're all, I think they're all oval tracks. What are the primary differences between uh, NASCAR and IndyCar? Well, just to jump in on that one a little bit, they're not all oval tracks. There's oh, a I'm couple, sorry. I... Yeah, there's a couple of road courses that they do now. And really? Okay. Yep. They're looking to expand their variety in the schedule a little bit in the coming years to expand into more street courses like IndyCar is capitalizing currently. So I think there is a planned Chicago street course race next year or the year after or something. So what other differences in terms of how things operate? They, they, each car and each team, there are also massive teams of people. Yep. And you have obviously the same sort of setup in terms of pit crews and drivers and so on. You talked about some subtle differences between IndyCar and F1. What are, what are some of the, the differences we might not know about with NASCAR? Yeah, so I'll have to split that answer up a little bit because... NASCAR is currently, or just went through a large shift in how that series operates. So previously, the NASCAR rulebook was very vague. You could build your own parts, you could build your own chassis, you could do a lot of in-house development, similar to Formula One, not quite the same level, not quite the same budget, but still very impressive. And currently, it's a lot closer to IndyCar where the chassis is provided to you, the suspension's provided to you, it's all spec parts. You're allowed to change how it's bolted to the car and like what springs you use and parts like that, just like IndyCar, to put the focus back on the driver. Now you were an electrical engineer. How is that role different than what you're doing now? Yep. So when I was the electrical development engineer, I was shop-based. So this was still at the time when NASCAR was a lot more open on the development. So it was my duties to pay special attention to attrition-proof the electronics on the car as much as we can, as well as develop them to a greater degree of weight savings and capabilities within the narrow window that we were allowed to perform in. So if there are any issues with, say, switches failing or fans failing, electrical harnesses being shorted out, battery issues, because we were allowed to develop our own battery systems, it was my job to investigate all of those parts, fix them, give directives on how to prevent this stuff in the future. And if I'm 
able to provide better parts, either developed in-house or procured from an outside supplier. So on race day, you yeah. weren't down there stressing with the car. You were back home at the shop or your house watching the race on TV. Yep, yep. And so I still contributed on race day. So we would monitor as much information as we can from the race and then supply that information back to the guys who were trackside. So, so you're still working. You're not just sitting there chilling. You're working. But yep, yeah, it's okay. it's a it's deceiving to think that you could work five days a week and not have to travel. You're not having to travel, but you're still having to work seven days a week because you have to support those guys that are there on the weekend. So if they so have this is one of those 24-7 jobs. Almost. <laughs> almost. It's a meat grinder. Yeah, I bet. I bet you it's hard. And the season runs when to when? February to to November. So do you have, well, coming to the end of the season, have you had the last race yet this year? Yeah, so the NASCAR season's over currently. What happens, well, and what about IndyCar, your job? Are you are you done for the year race-wise? Race-wise, yes. Yeah, so the NASCAR season runs February to November. The mm -hmm. IndyCar season runs March to September. So it's a little shorter. It's a little more spread out in the races. So what happens... Yep. What are you doing now? Just like everybody else that has an off-season in sports, you go back and rethink stuff, relook at stuff, and and do some creative visioning and all that kind of stuff. Yep, uh, absolutely that. So because we're basically just going from one race to the next, one race to the next, and only really have the time to do the preparation for an event, go back to the shop, review, roll that uh, learning into the next event, prepare for that event, go perform, come back, repeat, you basically end up with a wish list of all the projects and all the issues that you want solved. So either that stuff can get passed off mid-year to guys who are able to pick up that load at the shop and look further into those systems. Or if it's something that's that's more personal project or something that you have the expertise in, it has to sit until the end of the season, in which case you spend that off time developing those systems, developing software, checklists, managerial systems of, of uh, structure to then roll into the next season. So are you planning as it stands right now, are you anticipating being with Andretti next year? Yep. Yep. Uh, I am under contract for the next two years uh, to perform this role. And they have the option to secure me for another year after that, if they need be. And what's, what's, uh, your first race? It next will race. be the St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg street course in March. Well, that's a good amount of time. Now, if we're watching one of these races, do we see you or are you like, we see the pit crew from time to time. Are you back somewhere that behind the scenes? Normally, I'm I'm when the car goes into the pits. If I pause it and I look really closely, I can find myself. So when we're actually doing the pit stop itself, I have my own fire suit on. I have my own gloves, fire protection gear, because my secondary job is the dead man for the fuel flow. So because the cars, the uh, fuel system for the cars is able to deliver about three gallons a second when they're refilling the cars. 
you have a guy that stands there with just a handle and if something goes wrong, I let go so that it cuts off the fuel flow to the car. I see. So yep. there's, if there's a spark somewhere, you're like, no more fuel. Yep, basically. What's the name of that job? <laughs> the, the Dead Man? Yeah, The Dead Man. That's quite the title. Wow. Well, Michael, this has been fascinating. I now will look at some races with a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more interest. I'll have to tune in to, uh, I'll follow your car next year. Are you? Will you be on the same car? I'll be on the same car. Well, I'll be following. So thank you for your time. And I thank you. I know Kettering has turned out a couple of NASCAR people here and there, but I think you're the latest and greatest and we'll be interested in following your career. Thanks so much for your insights. Awesome. I appreciate you having me. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.